that shaped a lot of who I am now because I read into things. The good thing is that Trent, being an artist, you know, respects the artist's point of view. He happens to be the only person in the music industry that I trust. And I think rock bands are out of fashion generally, you know, these days. Um, I don't give a shit. It all becomes one thing, where we can kind of make sense, it's therapy, it's also a way of trying to come to terms with a world that less, makes less sense, it seems, as the days go on. I listened to Pink Floyd The Wall a million times and reading everything I could into, detecting there were certain lyrics that weren't on the album that were in the liner notes. But that kind of blank canvas allowed me to read into it what I wanted it to be to me. The other thing about this show is that almost nothing about it is premeditated. I mean, it was put together really fast. We just spent all our effort and actually working on the music that we really want to play. And it's that kind of show. I mean, it, the dynamic of it is really, in a way, masculine, and it's really stripped down. This is what it is. You may not like it, that's fine. You don't need, there's plenty of other options for you, you know? It's not gonna hurt my feelings to say I don't like Nine Inch Nails. Fine, you know? Hello, and welcome to the Discographers Podcast. For those of you who may be tuning in for the first time, this is a podcast where we go through the entire catalog of a band, one album at a time. My friend Tyler here. Hi, Brian. Hi, Tyler. Tyler will be going through the history of the band, while I will be taking a look at the technical and musical points of interest in a given album. You're now joining us for the second episode in our series on Nine Inch Nails. So, Tyler, what are we talking about today? We're going to talk about Nine Snails' second release, Broken, from 1992. Broken represents uh, an important stylistic departure for Trent. This is the beginning of Nine Inch Nails as we sort of know it today. So this is a bit of a, a stylistic change from, from Pretty Hate Machine's synth-pop sound to more uh, traditional Nine Inch Nails industrial sound. Now, we're going to go ahead and dig into Tyler's history section where he'll explain a little bit about what brought Trent to the point of making an album so sonically divergent from where he had started and how we ended up with the Nine Snails we know and love today. During the extensive touring for Pretty Hate Machine, Trent Reznor's label, TVT Records, was pressuring Reznor for a second album that copied the synth-pop sound of Pretty Hate Machine. Still frustrated with TVT's interference during the recording of Pretty Hate Machine, Reznor asked to terminate the contract. TVT refused and continued to push for another album that fell into the synth-pop genre. Reznor and producer Flood began recording more material for a Nine Inch Nails release, but did so under fake names, so that the label wouldn't have any say in how it was produced. According to Reznor, they made it pretty clear they weren't ready to sell, so I felt like, well, I finally got this thing going, but it's dead. Flood and I had to record the broken record under a different band name, because if TVT found out we were recording, they would confiscate all of our shit and release it. During this time, Jimmy Iovine at Interscope Records hoped to buy out Reznor's contract from TVT. The HBO documentary miniseries The Defiant Ones dramatizes this as a battle of wills, with Iovine literally staying in his bathroom for an entire year on the phone with Interscope legal team Steve Gottlieb of TVT and Reznor's manager John Malm. Eventually, TVT relented and signed over the contract to Interscope. When Reznor met Iovine for the first time, Reznor was guarded. He was free of TVT, but he had no idea if Iovine and Interscope would be easier or more difficult to work with. At the same time, Interscope was still a new label. It had only existed for two years. In fact, their first release was Rico Suave by the Ecuadorian rapper and singer Geraldo. Yeah, that guy. In that first meeting in Reznor's hotel room, Iovine was very amiable to all of Reznor's requests. First, in advance for a record. Second, to be left alone to create the record, choose what songs were released as singles, and have control over all the artwork. Finally, Reznor asked for a vanity label under Interscope that Reznor would control and he could sign artists if he saw fit. 
Iovine agreed to all of Reznor's requests without hesitation, and Reznor gave Interscope the broken EP to be released in 1992. Using his full creative control, Reznor commissioned musician and music video director Peter Christofferson to create music videos for most of the EP's tracks that told a single story. This became known as The Broken Movie. Its content is very graphic and could not be released officially, but is believed that Reznor gave out incomplete VHS copies to his friends. Fans later got their hands on these copies, and they were heavily traded during the 90s. The EP's notes contain the standard thank you section with names of Iovine, Rick Rubin, and others that Reznor appreciated, but it also had a no thanks, you know who you fucking are, followed by the slave thinks that he is released from bondage only to find a stronger set of chains. In another example of subtly telling us how he feels, Reznor whispers, eat your heart out Steve, at the beginning of Physical, and is most likely directed towards TVT founder Steve Gottlieb. Despite being a large deviation from Pretty Hate Machine's industrial synth-pop sound, a lack of tour to promote it, and its first promotional video being banned from MTV for depicting a man being tortured and killed, Broken sold well and eventually went platinum. The track Wish won a Grammy for Best Metal Performance. After winning, Reznor joked that he wanted his gravestone to read, Said Fistfuck won a Grammy. Next on Reznor's Horizon, The Downward Spiral, and more commercial success. You may remember my brief music theory primer from the last episode, and this time we're going to take a look at a couple of specific music and production concepts which feature Unbroken. So, let's talk about frequency. Sound is just vibration. How slowly or quickly a sound is vibrating determines its frequency. Frequency is measured in hertz, which is the number of times a sound wave vibrates in one second. So hertz is sometimes called cycles per second. A sound with a small number of hertz, such as 100, will sound deep and low. Whereas a sound with a larger number of hertz, such as 1000, will sound high and bright. For reference, human hearing can range from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz and music recordings can make use of that entire range, although most useful audio information tends to occur between 40 hertz and 12,000 hertz. So, how does this apply to Broken? More on that in a minute. But first, let's discuss the relationship between frequency and musical scales. Last time I talked about how scales are made up of seven repeating notes. In a given scale, each note can be assigned a number from one to seven. When it repeats, and you get to the 8th note in the scale, it actually has the same note name as the first note, but with a frequency twice as high. For example, if you play a C major scale, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, the two Cs sound very similar. But the first is at 261.63 Hz, and the second is at 523.25 Hz, nearly exactly double the number. The distance between these two notes is known as an octave, oct for eight notes. Each note in between has its own frequency as well. For broken, we will be looking out for the frequency that lies directly in the middle of the first and eighth notes in the scale. This note is often called the tritone. This note, when paired with the first note of a scale, makes a very unpleasant sound, and many classical composers avoided it at all costs. But when used correctly, it can be very impactful. It has been used in countless songs, but one of the most famous examples is the opening to Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze. Now, on to Broken. Nine Inch Nails' second album is a departure from the synth-heavy industrial sound of Pretty Hate Machine. It relied much more heavily on guitar, and as such had a more aggressive and imperfect sound. It was experimental, inventive, and angry. This month, I will be breaking down every track on the album, since there are only six. That being said, these tracks are very musically dense, and there is a lot to explore. Also, for the sake of time, I will be talking less about the lyrics, as they aren't as drastically different from Pretty Hate Machine as the music. The opening track of Broken is the instrumental, Pinion. It's a sort of spooky prelude to the record, which builds steadily until its peak at the end, which features a very gritty guitar riff. 
This riff is actually playing for the duration of the track, but is only fully audible the last time. But how is this accomplished? This is where the discussion about frequencies comes back in. Musical instruments send out many frequencies at once, and the combination of frequencies are what give an instrument its specific sound. Here, Trent makes use of frequency manipulation, known as equalization or EQ, to shape the sounds in the recordings. On this track specifically, he uses a high-pass filter. It is what it sounds like. It's a filter which only allows high frequencies to pass through, which you can now hear in my voice. Now, the opposite of this is a low-pass filter, which only allows low frequencies to come through. And it sounds like this. Use of a low-pass filter has become a common pop production technique and can be heard in many songs, including The Bridge of Last Friday Night by Katy Perry. At the start of Pinion, only the highest frequencies of the guitar are allowed through, creating a distorted static sound, barely recognizable as a guitar. Over the course of the track, more and more low frequencies are allowed to come through until the full sound of the guitar is revealed at the end. This is a good example of Trent using the recording technology itself as part of the arrangement of the song. And at the time, this was not a particularly common practice. This song also features the first use of a tritone on the record. The next track is one of the most influential on this record, Wish. This song is, in my opinion, the first song that showcases Nine Inch Nails as we know them today. Lyrically, it could almost be described as a celebration of rage. The difference this time is that the lyrics are more unapologetically aggressive than Pretty Hate Machine. On a superficial level, the song uses the word fuck three times, when it was only used once in the entire duration of the first album. On a deeper level, the song conveys anger rather than angst, lashing out rather than drawing in. Over the years, there have been many nuances in Trent's lyrics, but this song marked a shift from self-pitying to destructive, whether it is toward himself or others. From a musical standpoint, the song solidifies some ideas that were touched on in Pretty Hate Machine and eventually became a trademark for the band. For example, the extreme dynamic changes in the verse, and a guitar riff which shares musical bones with both Sin and Head Like a Hole. The song is primarily somewhere between a minor scale and a Locrian scale, switching between the two whenever necessary. The song is simple enough from a structure standpoint, but its breakneck tempo and bombastic dynamics keep it very interesting. The song is also the second on the album to feature a tritone. The next track is the song Last, which starts in the same key and scale as Wish. It notably changes keys in the chorus to a similar scale, but two notes higher. Which is extremely similar to how Metallica handles the chorus of Enter Sandman. Metallica similarities don't end there, either, as the guitar riff in the third verse bears some rhythmic resemblance to Master of Puppets. Although slower and slightly different, the general feel of the riffs is quite close, with a quickly strummed low open string being interrupted by moving power chords. This song showcases Trent's well-rounded guitar skills using many heavy metal guitar techniques, such as palm muting. Palm muting involves placing the heel of your strumming hand directly on the string while strumming to partially dampen the sound and provide a thicker tone. Also present is one of Trent's most impressive guitar parts in between the first two verses. it is trickier to play than it sounds. In addition, there are tritones all over this song. Seriously, the first one is two seconds into the song and they just keep coming. It also makes use of an interesting recording technique toward the end, where he is screaming lyrics on the left channel of the recording while whispering them on the right.
and then switching them back and forth. The next track is another instrumental, Help Me, I Am In Hell. This one introduces a new scale for Trent, the Mixolydian scale. It's like a major scale, except the last note is one note lower. Hear the difference? It gets used quite a bit in blues music, but this feels far from blues. It has a simple yet effective guitar riff, which has one rising phrase, followed by a descending phrase. Both of these phrases end in a tritone, which in this context is oddly beautiful. The track is repetitive, tense, and almost hypnotic. Happiness and Slavery comes up next, and it is basically a song about Stockholm Syndrome. It is the most danceable song on the album, much like Sin was to Pretty Hate Machine. It uses the same key change as last, but this time it goes up for the pre-choruses, reserving the lower key for the verses and choruses. The verses are exceedingly abrasive, paired with lyrics about what is causing the titular slave to scream. The pre-chorus has a cleaner, more dancey sound, while the lyrics tell the slave that ignoring his plight may keep him happy. The chorus has a middle ground between the sound of the verse and the sound of the pre-chorus, which seems to represent the duality in the refrain, happiness and slavery. Much like Terrible Lie, this song is a fantastic example of Trent's knack for perfectly matching the emotion of his music to his lyrics. The song also has an extended rhythmic solo section comprised mostly of drum samples. It is very similar to his later work on the track Great Destroyer. The ending comes abruptly, cutting Trent off in the middle of whispering the word happiness. Which may or may not be meant to be symbolic. Oh, and uh, of course there are tritones. The last song on the album is Gave Up. It is the fastest paced song on the album, and it is relentless. Trent's vocals in the verses and chorus are heavily filtered. Now I can't confirm this, but I think he's singing through a ring modulator, which is a device that distorts both the volume and frequency of a sound. It was famously used to create the voices of the Daleks on Doctor Who. Whatever device he's using, it lends a very alien sound to his vocals. The high-pitched vocals in the chorus may have sounded silly, if not for the extensive layering and filtering that was applied, but it ended up being very menacing. The drums start off as a drum machine, work their way up to a real drum kit with a low-pitched tom-based rhythm, and the cymbals announce the arrival of the chorus. There is a synth solo after the first chorus, which leans heavily on the tritone. Which seems like an attempt to make the synth as imperfect as the guitars it is surrounded by. The bridge of the song shows Trent repeat the lyric, I tried, but I gave up. This is not the first time he has used this tactic but he has had a lot of songs over the years where he made use of a repeating phrase while building up the dynamic level of a song. I will be sure to point out other examples as they come up. The end of the song devolves into complete chaos. With the elements falling out of time with each other, and slipping away until all we are left with is a heavily modified clip of Trent screaming, throw it away. Yeah! 
The outro lives up to the name of the album, as it truly sounds like the song became broken. Well, to wrap up now, if Pretty Hate Machine was a turning point for industrial rock, Broken was an even bigger turning point for Nine Inch Nails. After a three-year break, Trent had returned with a completely new sound, which set the tone for the rest of his career. This record doesn't have the cohesive story that Pretty Hate Machine or next month's episode Downward Spiral had, but nonetheless, it is engaging, and the tracks all feel very connected. It is a gem of an album, and it took Nine Inch Nails from the sidelines and into the mainstream consciousness. Nobody expected this from him, and nobody knew what to expect next. More on that next month. So those are my thoughts on Broken, and uh, it's it's a hell of a record. But uh, Tyler, what do you find interesting about Broken? Compared to Pretty Hate Machine, Broken is much more uh, more of my style of music. You can actually hear some real drums and real guitars. So uh, yeah, I I much prefer this to Pretty Hate Machine. Yeah, I uh, I think one of the the things about the album is that it relies much more heavily on stringed instruments than uh than it did upon synthesizers uh it was very much the opposite balance of the way it was with pretty hate machine and the uh the thing with stringed instruments is that they are inherently out of tune they are they are imperfect and there's nothing that can be done about that you know kind of the way this the western scale works uh, is that when you're on a stringed instrument, you're you're just on the average of being in tune. So each note has its own little slight bits of being out of tune. And I feel like Trent was really leaning into that imperfection to lend a level of grit and aggression that wasn't available to him when he was primarily playing on synthesizers, which are more or less completely in tune. Uh, one thing that I found with this compared to Pretty Hate Machine is I feel like there's the la- there's more layers to each track. This EP is 26 years old and I've been listening to, to it since 2005 and I'm still finding new layers and sounds. Absolutely. I gave the I gave the <laughs> the EP a complete re-listen when I was on the way home from work before we recorded this. And honestly, tonight rediscovered that there are things that actually are are playing underneath the main riff in like gave up that I mm-hmm. that I didn't realize were there. For most of my listening, you know, my music listening career, I've been just working with cheap, you know, iPod earbuds. You know, nothing nothing fancy. I, I got a pair of noise canceling headphones that, you know, the big kind of bigger cans. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to broken and some other nine inch nail stuff and i'm and i could just hear so much more so um you know it was one of those things of like people always say oh you know you should get nice headphones and you know nice you know a good quality audio and i i actually did it for myself and it's like oh wow there's there's actually something to, something to this yeah there, there's it, it's funny when you talk about like audiophile level equipment there there's there's obviously a point of diminishing returns Right, like if you're spending yeah. three thousand dollars on a pair of headphones, you're probably getting duped, right? But <laughs> there is definitely a big difference between spending twenty dollars on a pair of headphones and spending two hundred dollars on a pair of headphones. Yeah. So one thing that I think is kind of interesting for this is on the original releases on the C the CD release, there was the CD had the first the the six tracks by Nine Inch Nails. And then there was a a second disc, which is a mini, a three inch mini CD, which had the two two cover tracks, uh, physical and suck. And the idea was that to kind of have some separation between the, these these two things, because broken broken is its own entity, and then these covers kind of came out. F- during the same time period, but are but the music is written by originally written by other artists. So it's kind of so yeah. Both of these came from the same time frame where they they recorded at the around the same time. The these two covers are kind of different thematically from the first six tracks. 
So I'd never actually been aware of a release of Broken that didn't have Sucker Physical on it, right? So, so the way I've always had it in my iTunes was the original six tracks followed by those two. Which always yeah. kind of confused me because it was an EP. Like, why is it so long? Right. And actually, uh, so the first pressings had the two separate discs. And then for, for the for the future pressings, because it was too expensive to have the set, that mini CD included, they, they're actually included on the main CD. There's the first six tracks, and then you have a whole bunch of tracks of silence. And then tracks yep. 98 and 99 are physical and suck. (laughs) So kind of that was their way of providing that separation between the two different, the two different things. Which just felt a a little more mystical than I think it was actually intended to be at the time when I, when I first got a hold of it. Yeah. Cause it makes a lot of sense though. Yeah. Cause we're, we came into this, you know, in the two thousands, much, much later, than the, yeah. the original release. so That does make a fair amount of sense, though, because I always did feel that uh, that those two songs were a bit disconnected from the rest of the record, not not necessarily by the space, because, you know, when I imported the CD into my iTunes, because once upon a time, kids, we used to actually rip CDs directly into iTunes instead of downloading them from the internet. But uh, w- when I did that, I deleted all the tracks of silence because what do I need ninety-one tracks of silence on my uh, on yeah. my iTunes for? So so I when I listened to the album, it just went directly from the last track into uh, I guess physical comes first. Yep. Um, but they always felt sort of thematically disconnected, if not necessarily spatially. And that's that. That begins to make a lot more sense for me. I mean, I'm actually learning something here, so thank you for that. Oh, no problem. One of the things that Nine Channels has done recently is been doing the uh, re-releasing albums as and calling them the definitive, you know, the the definitive broken release. And and this is all on vinyl, and you get a download code. But for the, but the vinyl, it they they retain the. The first six tracks are on one are on the vinyl, the the, the twelve inch vinyl, the full size, and then yeah. there's a set, there's a small the the small single size uh, where it's physical and suck on a separate a separate disc. So you they retain the separation. You have to you put on the twelve inch, and then when that's over, you have to get up, walk across the room, and switch discs, and that's how you get the 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 bonus tracks that is that is cool now that that automatically makes me want to go through and listen to the album again but stop before the two covers just just give yourself like a a 30 seconds of silence between the covers i i I would say honestly just pull up something different like uh you know some something equally angry and or depressing like like uh the song no children by mountain goats and then go into the last two songs by the way if you want to if you want to feel some things go listen to that song yeah, so so those definitive editions are actually pretty interesting. Um, yeah. So as as I understand, you've been collecting those a bit. Which ones do you have? So right now, as of right now, I have the. It's not technically a definitive, uh, but they there's a remaster of Pretty Hate Machine that came out in 2012, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so then I then I have the Broken definitive. I have Downward Spiral definitive. I have uh, the Fragile definitive, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I have my uh, Year Zero remixed, but I, that's the original pressing from back in the back when that was originally released. And then I think I'm the I think it from there jumps to Ghosts, which is also first pressing, you know, original. Mm-hmm. And then I think that's it for Nine Inch Nails. I have I have the Trent Reznor's. Uh, Vietnam War soundtrack on vinyl. Then that's that's that came out in 2017. So one of the things that you know we've talked about already is that this is this was recorded during a time of angst and frustration with his label. Um, so something that I that I mentioned in my history section was the "Eat Your Heart Out, Steve" that's whispered during the opening of Physical. And how that's probably directed towards Steve Gottlieb of TVT. Um, you don't really see this a lot with artists at- directly attacking somebody uh, 
you know, especially somebody who you tell very recently was in charge, owned their contract. Well, I mean, as I'm sure we'll find out in later episodes, this is not the first time that Trent uh, sort of butted heads with uh, the head of his label. But uh, keeping in mind that this is the same label that told him he had ruined his record, his first record. <laughs> Yeah. When he made it what he felt like it was supposed to be. Uh, I, I feel like the sort of audible middle finger is uh, one warranted and two hilarious. Well, so the, yeah, there was the, the audible middle finger and then there was the actual printed uh, fuck you that was literally printed in the, the liner notes. Was there really? I genuinely had no idea. I've never so, hold a, I've never held a hard copy of, of Broken in my hands. So yeah, the back of it has the, you know, the whole, you know, Nine Tales was performed and written by, produced, you know, by Trent Reznor. But there's a thank you, you know, Jimmy Iovine. And then there's a no thank yous. You know who you fucking are. The slave thinks that he is released from bondage only to find a, ch- a stronger set of chains. Wow. Yeah. Like. Wow. That is, um. <laughs> That is brutal, and I had no idea that that existed. Um, that that makes a lot of sense, and I, I think that there's a really interesting bit of foreshadowing there, considering some of the struggles that he had with Jimmy Iovine later on. I, you know, I from what I so from the research that I've done for future episodes, I feel mm-hmm. I think that Jimmy Iovine and mm-hmm. Trent got along well. So and the problem wasn't necessarily with Jimmy so much as it was with Interscope. I have not found anything solid to support this, but from what I can tell, Jimmy came in at the beginning and met with Trent, and you know Trent was gave him all his list of demands. You know, I I want to I want to have full control. I want to choose the artwork. I want to I want to have my own sub label and have autonomy there. And Jimmy said, oh, yeah, great. yes, 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 uh, do whatever you want. You're, you're awesome, Trent. And then I th- what I think happened was Jimmy kind of moved on to other projects. And so somebody else kind of got was had got more and more involvement in, in the United Nationals account for Interscope. And so the, that's, I think, where the issues were. Because Jimmy up. had made a lot of promises, but then other people came out, came in to uh, not follow through. Them. Yeah, well, I, I think maybe like accounting came in and it was like, okay, so let's talk about it's always this the bean counters. It's yeah, always the bean stuff counters. like stuff like that. Where yeah, let's talk about having this whole st- us. Uh, you want to have a CD and then a mini CD, and it's going to cost you know twice as much for that mini CD. So let's <laughs> let's talk about how who's paying for this, Trent. Um, so I, that's what I think has kind of, kind of happened through the years. So like right now, we're still in the period of things are things are pretty good. Everybody's happy with each other, um, but things kind of you know things kind of do start to devolve as, as time goes on. So broken is one of those one of those releases that I have listened to quite a lot. Mm-hmm. But I've never actually had, other than when I first ripped the CD, which was probably your copy of the CD. <laughs> I, th- I think you bought it and then you gave me the physical copy after after we had both ripped it. Oh, that that that's that's because I love you. Yes. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't think since that time I have ever actually held a physical copy of that record in my hand. Uh, so I had no idea about uh, about. That liner note that that is so dark. Um, so, are there any other fun nuggets in the uh, in the graphic designer liner notes with this one? Or uh, there is one other interesting thing. There is a caution that on the back on the back well, near the thank yous that it says caution not for use with mono devices. <laughs> and uh, it's not on the record specifically, but later on, Trent. Uh, gave an interview where he kind of talked about the reasoning behind this. His thing, he says, quote, uh, without getting too far into detail, a scientific property of its of sound is its phase. When recording music in stereo, you're supposed to be aware of its phase. If not, certain parts of the sound will disappear when it's played in mono. 
So when we discovered that, by messing around with the phase, we could make elements of the music stand out rather oddly. So certain songs on Broken, we mixed out of phase because we felt like it, but the songs don't sound right on mono devices like radio stations or on TV. I heard it on the I heard Happiness and Slavery on K Rock in LA, and the snare drum was gone through most of the song, and it basically it it destroys the groove. The interesting thing is when you talk about the differentiation between mono and stereo, right? Stereo implies that you have two separate streams of audio happening for both the left and right sides. So if you're wearing headphones, the left side is getting a slightly different signal than the right side, right? Whereas with mono, if you have a mono recording, even if you're listening on a pair of head a pair of headphones you know a left and a right headphone they're each getting the same thing right now the way that phase works is it actually has to do with the waveform of the sound right so the the, the way that waveforms work and you've you've seen them in graphic design before uh it's the the ups and downs the peaks and valleys of the sound now when two sounds are in phase their peaks and troughs their highs and lows in terms of actually looking at the physical waveform of the sound that is recorded, they're lined up. The high points and the low points are happening at the same time. So so there's some very strange science occurring on this record. Phase is a weird thing to deal with, and honestly, most mainstream records avoid having anything even the tiniest bit out of phase, like the plague. And the right. fact that Trent, Just... Trent in 1992 used it as as a as an arrangement element and honestly continued to do so there were there was points on year zero which we'll talk about later on where he did the same thing where where it, it sort of distorts your perception of the physical space of the sound phase yeah. is a weird weird thing it's basically audio black magic for for the year zero thing not to jump too far ahead uh there was I listened to what the track that I'm pretty sure you're referencing in like in my car and it I there was parts that I remember hearing I remember being in the song and then they were just gone like there was some music playing but just so, a, so se- a huge section was gone can I can I can I guess here was it was a great destroyer yes yeah, yeah, he he specifically uses phase cancellation in that song to make some really really weird stuff happen when you're listening to it. So if you if you if you're listening to it on a subpar device, you know through a subpar method, you're gonna hear le- you're not gonna hear the full song. Is really what we're getting at. So obviously we're jumping several albums ahead here, but if you if you want to take a listen to the song Great Destroyer for a really good example of phase cancellation. Once the bulk of that song is done, the first two or three minutes or so, there's basically a sample solo, you know, like in very much the same way a guitar would happen. There's a sample solo where it's just sounds that are played in a rhythmic pattern. And there are some weird things that happen. Uh, I, I remember the first time that I listened to that song in my uh, my first car, my 1998 Mercury Grand Marquis. Yep. Uh, which Tyler was in with me when I totaled eventually. That's a story um, for a different time. Oh, yeah, and a different podcast. But anyhow, uh, the first time I listened to that song in that car, with a it had a Bose sound system, and when I heard the face cancellation take effect, I didn't know what it was at the time because I had no idea how to read, you know, how the science behind that yeah. worked. All I, all I had was the general sensation that the sound was moving to the outer extremities of my car. It was so weird. It was so weird. It's a really fascinating thing. It's something that he started doing in 1992 and then really pushed to his extremes in 2007. Brian, have you heard Butch Vig's remix of Last? I actually have not. Apparently it's a remix that he did back in 1992-93, but was never released until like 2007. So for... For hardcore Nine Inch Nails fans who've been around since the olden days, they've heard you know they've heard about this song but never been able to actually hear it. And then for those of us who are a little newer who just were able to find it on the internet when it was put out, you know we 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 got to reap 
those benefits. But it's it's a pretty cool remix if you ever if you want to check that out. I please please put that in the show notes so I can look yeah. it up afterward because that uh, Butch Vig is a legendary producer and I would love to hear what he did with that. Yeah, that song is um yeah producer and drummer for Garbage. Yes, important side note. And my my primary experience with Butch Vig has been him producing one of my favorite Foo Fighters records and and also probably the most important alternative rock record of all time, Nirvana's Nevermind. Yes. But uh yeah, also a musician. Also also a very capable musician. <laughs> exactly. Um but kind of something we should, we haven't talked about yet in terms of remixes is Pretty Hate Machine had some remixes of the singles. But this is the one of the, this is the first Nine Inch Nails album to have a kind of companion piece to it. In, yes, that it has yes. a re, has a has a, a whole remix album uh, called Fix, which was the beginning of a long standing long standing tradition for Nine yes. Inch Nails. Yeah. Yes. Um. So it's it's in my opinion where you know I I, I like the rock stuff. I don't think Fix is in the same league as Broken. But it's definitely a cool thing to to listen to and hear kind of different takes and different interpretations of the of the broken tracks. Well, I I think the thing with Fixed is that um, a lot of the tracks on Fixed were definitely designed a little bit more with the aim of taking these aggressive. Um, sort of abrasive rock songs that were on on Broken, an album that was intentionally um, an assault on the ears, right? Yes, yes. And, and turning them into something that was meant for more extended play and to be um, a bit more danceable, right? Like, they're, they're, yeah. they're almost sort of a clubbed, a clubified version yeah. of the songs from that's, Broken. That's a, that's a good way to phrase it. Uh, they they are they are good remixes. They're they're very yes. interesting to listen yes. to, but they they they're very very different in. Um, I don't know if I'm using the word ethos correctly, but I'm gonna go with it. Well, if it helps, I don't know if you're using it correct better either, but we'll just go with it and say yes. Uh, the only other thing that is kind of dumb, listening to Broken years years after its recording, and hearing the line in Wish of 26 years on my way to hell. I, I almost feel like when they play when Trent plays it live, he should have just kept updating whatever his current age was at the time. Like, <laughs> you know, 46 years on my way to hell. So, so, so I think, uh, the, the, the thing that's funny about that is, um, the first time I heard that song, I was 16. Mm-hmm. I was, I was 10, 10 years younger. And, and now I've made my way past 26. Um, and I feel like that is the honestly a big indicator of the big thematic connection between Pretty Hate Machine and Broken, where he is still in a certain way dealing with that transition into early adulthood, but uh, he is in perhaps a more embittered and more aggressive, more uh, more action based part of that transition, right? Be- because. Yeah. Uh, not n- not to be in any way dismissive of Pretty Hate Machine, but that 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 record's a little bit more introspective, right? It, it, it's more about the uh the angst. Yeah, it's it's definitely drawn from the journals of a someone who is early in their relationship. Uh, yeah. skills, if that makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely, and th- this one, uh, the the lyrical content poured, points a lot more. Towards anger, then angst, and action. Yes. Right. Right. It, it, there. There's that. This is a progression for him as a human being, and I, I'm assuming that he's writing semi-autobiographically, as most artists do. Um, and that this sort of follows a a bit of a you know a personal story for him. And uh, th- this album is a sign of him growing up, and it- it's interesting that it's him finding his way personally at the same time that he's also finding his way musically to the sound that would sort of define him for the next several decades of his life. Yeah, definitely. So, I, I mean, I think that's going to kind of close us out for for Broken, 
During this part of the show, we kind of like to talk about a non Nine Inch Nails album or or release that we're kind of you know listening to now in the in the in the current 2018. Brian, do you have something that you're listening to? That what's on your record player, uh, or CD player, or iPod, or iPhone? That's the one. That's the yeah, one. Okay. iPhone. Uh, so so eight track. <laughs> well, I'm a Betamax player. The record that I've been listening to quite a bit lately is actually um, the most recent record from the National. Uh, which I believe is titled Sleep Well Beast. Uh, And I've had a similar experience with uh, this record as I have had with previous records from The National, where uh, upon first listen, I don't feel that I like it that much. Mm -hmm. But then upon repeated listens, I begin to love it, Um, as, as as I find some of the more details. Um, the, the, the weird thing about The National is that occasionally the lyrics can sound sort of trite, uh, but uh, given further inspection, have more to them. You know, perhaps there's a Nine Inch Nails parallel there, in as much as there are there are layers to Trent's work that you can dig into mm-hmm. uh, year after year and find new things. And that 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 has been my experience with the Nationals catalog as a whole. Grant that I've only listened really to their most recent three albums. Okay, I I'm I'm not familiar at all with the Nationals, so I will have to check it out. Oh, okay. Well, so the general idea with the National is that they're um, they're they're basically a folk band, okay, right? But uh, staffed entirely by hipsters, right? Like like New York style hipsters. Gotcha. Um, and I don't know if that's entirely fair, but it feels very accurate to me. So so the songs have a lot of uh, sort of a folk um, structure to them. Uh, but uh, usually pretty unique instrumentation, uh, simple melodies. They, they're, they're easy to connect to, but the the more you listen to them, the more you can get out of them. Well, that's cool. How about you? Uh, anything, uh, to, to use the exact same phrase as the last episode, anything you've been spinning? Uh, well, on my uh, uh, phone slash MP3 player, I've been listening to Mike Shinoda's uh, post-traumatic EP. Which, uh, if you're not familiar, Mike Shinoda is the the rapper and one of the songwriters for the band Linkin Park. Uh, Linkin Park's other singer uh, passed away in in 2017, and it was a kind of a suicide. So it was kind of very very abrupt kind of you know loss for the for the for this band. And so this EP is like it's like the title post traumatic. It's kind of uh, it's it's only three songs, but it's very much dealing with what is he going to do now. Wow, that sounds really really personal and very worth listening to. What is the general style of the EP? Is it is it Mike Shinoda returning to his sort of hip hop roots, or is it yeah, more so singer songwriter? Yeah, it's it's you know rap. You know, if you if you've heard Lincoln Park, you know you know the rap parts. Just an interesting, heartfelt kind of, really, you know, three songs. Well, and that that seems like something I want to check out because, uh, you know, in my experience with Mike Shinoda's work, be it with Linkin Park or with Fort Minor or by himself, um, uh, does have a unique talent for actually con- conveying honest emotions through written word, and that's um, not super common in yeah. any style of music to be completely honest i th- I, th- I think that that's part of what uh what gave lincoln park the allure that it had is just uh, uh the honesty mm-hmm. uh and i'm i'm actually very intrigued t- to see mike's thoughts on his current situation because that's um it's all the position that he's in yeah point. it's it's a really weird place to be in well on on that uh very happy and uh, and light note. Uh, we, we'd like to wish you goodbye. Uh, we'll see you next month. Tyler, what album are you going to be discussing next time? Next time, we'll be talking about The Downward Spiral. Of course, Nine Inch Nails 
potentially most popular album coming out in 1994, and uh, it should be a fun time to discuss it because, it, Tyler, you're a big fan of the record, no? Yes, big fan. So I am too, but it happens to be my least favorite Nine Inch Nails record. And that that is something that uh, I I did not know about you, Brian, and that is a very controversial uh, opinion. For, for most Nine Inch Nails fans, so I'm um, looking forward to talking about about how much you hate the Downward Spiral. I cannot wait to hear about how wrong I am. See you next time on The Discographers. And if you, the listener, would like to tell Brian how wrong he is, you can do so if you, if you email us, <laughs> discographers at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at discographerpod. And if you'd like to support us directly, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash discographers. You know, a dollar a month, five dollars a month, and we have some rewards set up for you. So you can get a little bit back. So if you have any comments or questions about Pretty Hate Machine, Broken, or the upcoming record of discussion, Downward Spiral, please let us know via any of the methods of communication that Tyler has listed before. And in the meantime... Have a wonderful month. We'll see you next time.